Hi, my name is Tom Jennings and this is 24 Framescast. Um, just before I begin, I just want to give a shout out to the blog at 24framescast.blogspot.com and if you want to email me, it's 24framescast at gmail.com. Um, I'm going to get straight into this show. It's a close-up episode on a Ealing film called Paul of London. Slightly self-indulgent, I have to admit, and I'm going to have to warn you now, there are spoilers throughout, but I hope you enjoy it. Many thanks. There was once a time when Britain truly had a film industry in the traditional sense of the word. Large studios with their own unique identities, big personalities and some of the greatest talent in the world. Of course the film industry still has thousands of talented individuals working in it, however the fact remains as an entity, British cinema is only a shadow of its former self. Part of this comes from how film is perceived in this country. Rather than seeing it as an industry, the powers that be place too much emphasis on the art aspect, often backing products that have very limited commercial appeal. In its heyday, however, the British film industry was able to find the perfect balance between the two, and testament to this is the huge number of films from 40s, 50s and 60s that to this day are still considered classics. At its peak during the 40s and 50s, Ealing Studios was most famous for its comedies, The Man in the White Suit, King Hearts and Coronets, and The Lady Killers being some of its most popular and successful works. Although films like Went the Day Well and Scott of the Antarctic are popular, and well known, the studios over more dramatic pieces such as the film I'm going to be talking about today, Paul of London, are not readily associated with the studio, except for enthusiasts and film historians. The film's director, Basil Dearden, is not one of the most revered and celebrated in British cinema, especially in comparison to his contemporaries such as David Lean. Learning his trade through Ealing Studios from script supervisor to associate producer to director, Dearden and long-term producing partner Michael Ralph were for a period of 30 years a formidable directing and producing pair. It was at Ealing that Dearden and Ralph helped lead the studio into a new post-war direction. 
1947's Freda deals with a German woman marrying a young RAF officer and her subsequent acceptance into middle-class British life. It may seem a little twee and earnest today, but at the time it was a noble attempt at dealing with post-war prejudices, and along with 1946, The Captive Heart offer an interesting insight into liberal attempts to understand and relate the lessons of the war into meaningful moral fables. It was, however, 1949's The Blue Lamp that launched the career of Dearden and a host of British stars including Dirk Bogard. The story of PC George Dixon that would later be immortalised in the TV series Dixon of Doc Green was reading its most daring film to date. Dealing with youth and crime, it is staggeringly tame compared to the noir films from America, yet still managed to cause outrage in the British media. It is a very Ealing film. A common enemy is thwarted through a community putting its differences aside in order to bring about social order and one that perhaps paints a very wholesome image of the local Bobby on the beat. Dearden Ralph would go on to make many more social problem films throughout the 50s before making more larger budget international fare, most notably 1966's cartoon with Charlton Heston. For fans of epic cinema it was shot in 70mm ultra panavision and having seen an original print it is visually at least a stunning looking film although the casting of Laurence Olivier as an Islamic extremist is slightly laughable. Dearden was killed in a car accident in 1971 and is in my mind a director who perhaps deserved more critical praise than he currently receives. He left a varied filmography showing himself to be an astute and highly competent filmmaker, effortlessly changing between genres. In 1951's Paul of London, produced along with one of British cinema's greatest figureheads, Michael Balkan, the then head of production at Ealing, it is one of the studio's more forgotten offerings that until last year I'd also never heard of. The titular Paul of London refers to an area of London near Tower Bridge famous for its docks and in later years smuggling and crime. The film centres around two sailors from the merchant vessel the Dunbar over 48 hours of shore leave. Dan, played by Bono Colleoni, is a brash American sailor looking to make some money on the side from the various contraband he smuggles on shore. Johnny is Dan's best friend, he is also black, the significance of which I will discuss later. Dan and Johnny head off into London where soon enough Dan has become involved in a plot with a two-bit performer Vernon, who along with a gang of criminals is planning to steal some diamonds, of which Dan will take to Rotterdam in exchange for £100. Johnny meanwhile begins a friendship with Pat, the kiosk girl at Vernon's theatre, and the pair begin a series of dates walking around the streets of London. Meanwhile, Dan, knowing the customs officials will likely search him every time he boards the Dunbar, asks Johnny to take the diamonds back on board, despite the obvious risk to Johnny if he is caught. After the heist becomes public, Dan is persuaded by his demanding mistress Maisie to keep the diamonds for himself, incurring the wrath of the gang and setting about a series of events that may well lead to Johnny ending up in prison on charges of theft and murder. Eventually, Dan, persuaded by the more morally righteous Sally, the part-time girlfriend of one of the Dunbar's crew, gives himself up to the police, allowing Johnny to begin his new life back in Jamaica. It is a film that in lesser hands may have been a mess, instead Dearden's delivers a poignant British noir film that is far ahead of its time in many different respects. Earl Cameron as Johnny in his feature film debut is nothing short of a revelation. The fact that a black actor was given such a major role in a film is an achievement in itself. Cameron was not a star at the time, and indeed black actors were often relegated to bit parts alongside white dominated casts. A veteran of stage and screen, Colleoni has an everyman quality to him, perfectly in keeping with his wise-cracking character. Suzanne Shaw as Pat, who incidentally would marry Colleoni, is very much a typical Ealing female, strong-minded and independent. She is politically aware and forthright, more than able to hold her own against other male characters. Perhaps my favourite aspect of the film is its cinematography. 
Ealing veteran and previous Dearden collaborator Gordon Dines creates a visual palette drawing on many different genres. The black and white image is full of contrast with the blacks being pitch black and the white shining brightly from the screen. The streets of London in the film are permanently covered in water and some of the shots of Dan and Johnny walking through the side roads at night look incredible with the cobble streak ink black and the street lamps shining into the puddles. For anyone familiar with The Third Man, the film does bear a striking resemblance. There are many scenes of characters walking the streets with shadows being cast and an ever-present threat that danger may be hiding in the darkened corners. It is also decidedly noir in style, yet the film lacks the kind of sophistication we often associate with protagonists from that genre. In one scene, Maisie and Dan plot to keep the diamonds. Maisie is shown in the classic femme fatale pose with the camera close up and the light shining brightly on her face. Like I said, we use our heads, we can do ourselves a bit of good. Put ourselves on velvet. in a brilliant team. Look, Dan. You've got to pull yourself together. I didn't think they were going to kill anybody. What if they get me? Who's going to believe my story? They're not going to get you. Can't you see, once you get to Rotterdam with this, we're quizzing. What you don't know is that Johnny was going to take him aboard. He can't now, and neither can I after that nylon business. Don't listen. Listen. Every time you've come ashore, you brought something and you shouldn't. How many times have they stopped you? You never used to think a thing about it, did you? Money for old rope, that's what you used to say. What's different now? It's not even coming ashore, it's going aboard. And for the colored boy, it's even better. It's a cakewalk. Think what it means. Think what you can do for him later on. Doesn't he want to go to school or something? All right. If anything goes wrong, it's my rap, not Johnny's. Oh, Dan. Oh, Dan. The presentation of London can often be too tourist-centric, as often happens in films set in the famous cities. There are many landmarks featured in the film, but crucially don't feel like they have been added for window dressing. In particular, Tower Bridge is featured heavily throughout. The Dunbar is moored next to it which gives it a logical reason to feature prominently, but never before have I seen it look so drab. In one scene Dan escapes from the Dunbar and in a low angle shot the bridge looms massively behind him. Although not made for any kind of military purpose, Tower Bridge in the film feels like an ever present oppressive symbol of the city. The sheer depth of the image is also at times staggering. Everything within the frame is always in focus and no better is it shown when the exterior scenes looking down the river. You can literally see for as far as the eye can and in the age of high depth and even on standard definition, the image of the DVD is quite incredible. I also find this kind of cinematography layers the image in a way that forces you to look deeper into it. When Johnny is in the theatre, the fore, middle and background are all in focus. It's not the first time we've seen this technique used in film, especially from cinematographers such as Greg Toland, but in the theatre scene especially, it actually works perfectly with the social exclusion Johnny is subjected to. This being made before the introduction of widescreen stock, the film was shot in a traditional academy aspect ratio. It is one of the most creative uses of the frame I've seen, with every inch of the frame from top to bottom being utilised throughout, in both the exterior and interior scenes. It's not a long film also, and an hour and twenty minutes flies by. There is no fat on the film whatsoever, no scene ever drags on too long, largely in part because of its ticking clock narrative. 
It's also an example why dialogue is an often overused aspect of screenplays. A simple look or nod conveys exactly what characters are thinking when a film is economical in running time as Paul of London, we don't need great tracks of dialogue to explain what the characters are also thinking. The way in which scenes are constructed reminds me in some respects of the way in which Terence Malick cuts scenes. We often come in on a scene mid-conversation, hear some important information, and then cut or fade as the conversation continues, hearing just enough to move the plot along, or hear what characters have to say or think. Don't you see they'll say to me, where were you? And I'll say I was in church and they'll laugh their ruddy heads off. But I was, on my life I was. I believe you, damn, why shouldn't they? The police believe me. Where are the diamonds? Johnny's got them. You mean the colored boy? But if they find them on him, you can't do that. If they wouldn't believe you, they'd never believe him. You know that. All right, then I've got to stop Johnny before he gets back to the ship. And then goes to the police. Dan, you must. No, I could get away. I, I know this river. I could do it. I know I could. No, Dan. If you did, you could never come back. But if you go to the police, whatever you've done, you can settle. I sometimes find scores on older films to be quite repetitive in style and tone, most probably a result of the high number of films studios were producing each year. Paul of London, however, has a distinct and original score by John Addison, who would later work on films such as The Bridge Too Far and Tom Jones. Although classical in nature, it has a very modern feel to it, especially when used in tandem with the cue cards we see during the film telling us what day it is. It adds to the kinetic pace of the film which is unfolding, and yet never feels overly melodramatic or is used in a manipulative way, as it could have been the case with the Pat and Johnny storyline. For such a short film, Paul of London does incorporate many different genres into its narrative, testament perhaps to Basil Dearden's versatility that he handles all the various generic elements in the film with real flair and distinction. Although quite an intimate story, I think there's a real sense of scale to the film. The Paul area is only a tiny part of London, but you get a real sense of the size of the city with the aforementioned depth of field in the image. This being made before the adoption of skyscrapers in the city, some of London's landmarks such as St Paul's Cathedral and Tower Bridge appear huge when shot by Dearden, often using camera from high and low angles to emphasise the scale of these magnificent buildings. If I were to criticise the film, Dearden does rely on characters literally walking into each other a little too much in order to move the story along. Once would be acceptable, but when it happens over and over it does become a little jarring. I know some people who can't stand coincidences in film, going so far as to call them contrivances. I don't normally suffer from this type of agitation, but Paul of London does rather push my acceptance to the limit, especially when Maisie argues with her sister, who storms out and walks straight into a hulking police officer. The robbery that happens halfway through the film is brilliantly executed set piece that like all good heists, the foundation of the mechanics of it are laid early on. In one seemingly random scene, we see Vernon practicing his jumps from a scaffold to a solitary bar in the theatre. We, we actually know he's actually preparing for the robbery, as he has to jump from one building to the next to gain access. The heist is followed by a high-speed chase through the streets in the early morning. 
this being in the age with bulky camera equipment and before more versatile camera rigs had been developed, it's still an incredibly exciting and well choreographed set piece. The car zooms through the streets, and although there are some moments of undercranking, it is still an impressive sequence given the limitations of the time. Likewise, after the police chase the gang, the death of Vernon is a real moment of suspense. Of course, there is use of rear projection as he dangles above a busy road, but when his body does fall, it is run over with a sickening crunch, followed by a lorry screeching into shot. I think Dearden's best work comes in his handling of the relationship between Johnny and Pat, which of course is aided by the brilliant performances of Earl Cameron and Suzanne Shaw. In one moment, the pair almost kiss by accident when a tram moves around a corner. Whether by accident or scripted, it's a genuinely romantic moment that pushes the social boundaries the film is exploring. If it indeed was an accident, its inclusion is still a remarkably brave directorial choice on the part of Dearden. As many films were heavily edited, or indeed banned for daring to suggest an interracial relationship, all round the performances are utterly superb. Cameron especially delivers a tremendous range of emotions in the film, from loyal and humble friend to the romantic to the heartbroken. Cameron injects Johnny with a subtle dignity. The social injustices he is victim of do not manifest themselves into screaming rage. Moreover, Johnny wishes for a better future, and one that he is actively going to try and make for himself. And because of the quiet intensity of Cameron's performance, we believe in the reality of the film's world that Johnny will go on to greater things. But what does it mean? It means that everything starts from here, goes right round the world, and comes back here. Longitude, oh. <laughs> That's something I never could understand, longitudes and latitudes. And why should it be just here? I don't know why. And I don't really understand about longitudes either, except they help to tell you where you are. You know, when you're at the wheel of a ship at night, far at sea and nothing else to do, you think about a lot of things you don't understand. You wonder why one man's born white and another isn't. And how about God himself? What color's he? And the stars seem so close, and the world so small in comparison with all the other worlds above you. It doesn't seem to matter so much how you were born. It doesn't matter. It does, you know. Maybe one day it won't anymore. But it still does. We can't put the world right. The friendship between Dan and Johnny would not work if Cameron and Colleone did not have such a natural chemistry between them, and the interplay between the two certainly works. The pair tease each other and interact in a way that makes you believe they have indeed been friends for many years, but it is the duality of Colleone's performance that leaves you guessing as to what path he will lead down. When he's with Maisie, he is greedy and self-serving. When he's with his real love, Sally, he is kind, moralistic and guilt-ridden. Crucially, he is totally believable in both modes, which works to the film's benefit come the final third, when Dan can either leave Johnny to rot or take the rap himself. I do find some of the more prolific characters to be a little too on the nose. Maisie, played by Moira Lister, has a shrieking voice, and of course we are meant to hate her in comparison to Pat, but subtlety this is not. Likewise, James Robertson Justice as a ship's drunken warrant officer is slightly needless addition, although he does deliver a rather misanthropic speech on London. Max Adrian as Vernon is one of the more noteworthy performances. Well spoken and articulate, he is by class definition far removed from the gangster he has decided to commit the robbery with. There is a desperation to Vernon, almost as if he knows that times are changing and he is going to be left behind in the wilderness. Adrian emotes the turmoil perfectly, 
in a very bizarre role. Well, everything all right? They gave me a gold watch, plated. Never mind, you'll be able to buy yourself a real one soon. I got the sailor. I don't know, I don't know, I'm sure. You're not getting cold feet now, after all the time we've waited. It was all right talking. Now it's come to doing it. You want the money as much as I do, you know that. It's Hobson's choice, but it's me that's doing the jump. Don't you worry, you've nothing to be frightened of. I think I've sunk as low as this. Listen, George, you were going to be a big shot, your own boss, with everything you ever wanted. And what are you now? An ex-clerk. Pension you can't buy fags on. Same with me. Look where I've got. Out there night after night. I just don't happen to like it there. Well, maybe it is a lousy act. But this time it's going to pay off. This is the chance for both of us to get our own back. It won't knock twice. All right. All right. Are they still in the safe? Yes. Now listen to me. Tomorrow you'll be in Rotterdam. Right out of it. Wait there for this sailor. Rather than basking in post-war glory, Britain was very much a nation in the midst of a deep economic recession and social change. World War II had left the country on the brink of bankruptcy. More and more countries in the empire were either seeking or had gained independence, and Britain's position as a global superpower was well and truly on the decline. It stands to reason, therefore, that the presentation of London in the film is actually very downbeat. In several scenes, characters walk across the bombed remains of buildings. Seeing such vast areas still in a state of ruin is totally alien to modern eyes. It is, however, a very clear metaphor for the social decay that many felt Britain was in. Many commentators at the time remarked on how far Britain had fallen in terms of social deviance and the rampant levels of crime that were sweeping through the country. Britain had been left on the brink of bankruptcy from the war, and even in 1950, the huge economic burden on the war of the war was hanging over the country. Many items such as stockings, which are smuggled in the film, were not readily available and the black market was booming, which naturally leads to the rise in criminality and its associated issues. Gangs would fight for territory and supplies and of course there was an entire generation of males who were trained to use weapons and equipment that would have come in handy for criminal pursuits. The post-war euphoria was therefore relatively short-lived. America had come out of depression and thrived because of the war, establishing itself as a global superpower along with Russia. Britain, however, was the complete opposite. How then is this reflected in Paul of London? Firstly, there is a desperation to the characters born of greed. Everyone who is either involved or by chance becomes involved in the heist, such as Vernon, do so because they cannot stand the world in which they live. Vernon is trapped at the theatre with his rather old and jaded act. The heist is his opportunity to leave this rundown existence. Maisie is the true femme fatale, Starl is instantly susceptible to the idea of stealing diamonds and even savagely beats her own sister in order to perpetrate the crime. When Johnny goes drinking he ends up at a sleazy all night den. He's propositioned by a woman who I think we can safely assume is a prostitute, is then robbed and eventually has a fight. The den itself is seedy in appearance with its low ceiling and unfriendly punters and is perhaps more reflected of a more internalised time when the individual was more obsessed with itself rather than the collective as had been seen in the war. Indeed, we often associate the victors in war as being the ones who benefit the most, yet Britain had inherited debt in the shattered Europe. It therefore stands to reason that a shift in mindset from foreign to domestic would occur, and with great impetus on by the individual to further their own ends. Of course, from a historical perspective, the racism Johnny is subject to makes Paul of London a fascinating film to explore. He is throughout the only black person we see in the film, 
1950 London was not multicultural. Mass immigration into the country did not occur until the end of the 50s and early 60s. The film doesn't waste much time in establishing he is the outsider. London is neither accommodating or accepting. Johnny is frequently referred to in a variety of derogatory terms. Often people refer to his type and is made to feel awkward by racist association. What do you want? Just waiting. Got your ticket? I've seen this show. I'm just waiting. I'll wait outside. We get enough of your love paying for their seats. Go on up. How could you speak to anyone like that? Coming in the earth, trying to get something for nothing. I told him he could wait there. There was a friend of mine waiting here. Where'd he go? He was told to get out. By you? Well, some of our customers who pay for their seats are a bit particular. You didn't like his face, is that it? Well, I don't like your face. Well, I was doing my job, that's all. Well, do it now. Go on. Tell me to get out, just once. Oh, leave him. You'll get us all into trouble. All right. But the next time you speak to a friend of mine, watch your manners. The boldest act of the aspect of the film is the relationship between Johnny and Pat. Not only does she stand up for Johnny, but there is also there is the suggestion of romance between the two. The film is always working against them. There are a multitude of existential factors making the romance highly unlikely to ever blossom. The Dunbar is soon to depart. Johnny is unknowingly part of a major crime, and then they have society itself making the whole thing a taboo anyway. Johnny and Pat's romance is impossible. Johnny is an outsider to this world, and Pat would be cut adrift from it if she becomes involved with him. What's worse is that Dearden even hints that a better world for the pair exists. Johnny plans on returning to school in Jamaica, and indeed anywhere seems better than London, as presented in the film. The romance of course is doomed to failure in a fantastic piece of narrative misdirection. We are led to believe that Johnny and Pat will get together, only for Johnny to be framed for the robbery. Instead, in the film's most touching scene, Johnny goes to see Pat at the dance hall. His decision is one based on courage ignoring the social conventions of the time that would lead us to believe he is going to pursue his feelings for Pat further. Without any fanfare or melodrama, he simply sees Pat on the other side of the street before she is joined by some female and male companions, all of course white Caucasian. He is in this world the perpetual outsider looking in, as we often literally see him doing during the course of the film. In an instant we snap back into reality from its romantic posturing. Johnny can never be with Pat because he is black, Social conditions dictate it can never happen. I'm glad Johnny gets the chance to leave at the end of the film and is not punished further by being caught with the jewels, as to do so it would in my mind cheapen the impact of his relationship with Pat and in many respects validate the bigoted views of the characters in the film. I often find films can be unnecessarily cruel on characters in order to r ramp up the emotional impact. Paul of London doesn't go for the cheap impact of sending its characters out. Although Dan is caught and punished for what he does, in a lesser film he would have sold Johnny out and left him to rot in prison. Paul London has far more faith in the friendship between the two. Dan reiterates his devotion to Johnny throughout and remains true to his word come the end. It is the ending that the film deserves, a simple nod and a smile between the two and the world goes on. As a Dunbar sails off up the river, there is a feeling that he is leaving for a far better place. Paul of London was released to strong critical praise, even though many commenters at the time felt that it portrayed far too bleak an image of London. Special praise was given to Cameron's performance, but it didn't connect with the audience the same way the infamous Ealing comedies did. Some critics felt it was a little too aimless, drawing particular attention to the Johnny and Pat storyline, which was felt to have no bearing on the central story, which was identified as being the heist, with very much to focus on Dan. I would contest this view as although Dan probably does get more screen time, the story needs Johnny for Dan to do the absolute right at the end. Of course the laws of sin at the time demand that Dan be punished, but he is not an objectionable protagonist, in the way in which criminals were so often portrayed on screen. 
Portal London was not a particular huge audience success upon its release, and perhaps due to Deard not being a particularly revered director, it has never gone on to receive the critical attention it deserves. Two years ago, the film was given another run in theatres by the British Film Institute and a DVD released by Optimum. It is, in my mind, about time. Paul of London was made by a studio that wanted to say something, to challenge its audience, and in the same time entertain. It succeeds on both counts, managing to raise the issue of race in a way that neither preaches or patronises, and more importantly does not insult the viewer by offering a simplistic solution. It is a very modern morality tale for its time, made in an age where Britain was undergoing a massive change in the role in the world, and indeed at home. It may seem quite tame now, but the very fact that even suggested a black man and a white girl could become romantically involved was daring and groundbreaking move. It predates the new wave of European crime films by some times, and far from being glamorous, crime in the film is presented as a desperate act committed by desperate individuals, sick of the lives they lead in what is supposed to be the post-war utopia. As the dumb pass sails away, it leaves London in the midst of change. As Pat remarks to Johnny, it will be the last time he will ever travel about on a tram, as they are soon to be retired. With its bombed out streets and tatty theatres, London was entering a cultural chrysalis before emerging again with its sex shops, celebrity gangsters and the infamous swinging London tag. I sincerely doubt Paul London will ever be regarded as one of the all-time greats of British cinema, but average is something this film is most definitely not. I can't recommend seeking it out enough, the aforementioned optimum release offers a fine transfer of the film, although it comes with no special features. On a side note, Actor Bola Colleoni was tragically killed in a car accident a few years later whilst married to Susan Ann Shaw, who suffered greatly with depression and alcoholism, eventually dying penniless with the rank organisation paying for a funeral. For anyone interested in Earl Cameron's thoughts on the film, you can find a link on the blog to a recent interview that he did with the BFI in which he talks about his experience of working on Paul of London. And that's going to be it for this episode of 24 Framescast. Um, again, get yourself over to the blog at 24framescast.blogspot.com. And if you want to email me, it's 24framescast at gmail.com. Um, there should be a couple more episodes out before Christmas, and I will speak to you in a couple of weeks. Many thanks. Bye. <laughs>